That was Supermoon Rising by Wadada Leo Smith, Douglas Ewart, and Mike Reed. It comes from the album Sunbeams of Shimmering Light on the Astral Spirits label. And yes, I said B-E-A-N-S, not B-E-A-M-S. And that's one of many things we discuss in the interview you're about to hear. Wadada Leo Smith is my guest on this episode of the Burning Ambulance podcast. Hello, I'm Phil Freeman, and welcome to the Burning Ambulance podcast, which is part of the OSIRIS Network. This is episode 65 of the show, and I'm very excited about this one. I think it's one of the more fascinating conversations I've had for the podcast, even if the sound of the call is a little rough. I apologize for that, but I think you'll be able to understand Wadada clearly even through the distortion. Before we dive in, I am uh, extremely excited to announce that the first two releases on our new label, Burning Ambulance Music, are available now. They're currently for sale on Bandcamp and from a few select stores and mail-order websites. You can get them from Downtown Music Gallery if you're in New York, or from Squidco, or from Revolver USA via Midheaven Mail Order. Of course, you can always order them directly from us. They are Alkiza by the Indonesian avant-garde drone metal duo Senyawa, and Polarity, a duo album by saxophonist Ivo Perlman and trumpeter Nate Woolley. Both of these albums have been reviewed in The Wire, and Polarity was written up in Downbeat and Jazz Is. Alkiza was reviewed on Pitchfork, and there was even an article about Senyawa in the New York Times. 
really beautiful music doesn't sound like anything else out there. That's the goal with Burning Ambulance music, and you'll see that over and over as we put out more records. So visit burningambulancemusic.bandcamp.com and buy some CDs. Not only because this is amazing music that will improve your life immeasurably, but also so that I can get them out of my apartment. And keep an eye out for our next two releases, a duo album featuring pianist Matthew Shipp and drummer Whit Dickey, both of whom have been on the podcast before, and a collaboration between cornet player Graham Haynes and electronic musician Submerged. If you visit the Bandcamp page, which again is burningambulancemusic.bandcamp.com, you can hear two tracks from the uh, Graham Haynes and Submerged album now. And if you enjoy the show and the website, uh, I hope you'll consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash burningambulance. It's just $5 a month, and it'll really help us to create more and better content in 2021 and beyond. So become a subscriber if you can. Okay, so uh, Wadato Leo Smith, I have been listening to him for a long time. I interviewed him for a cover story in The Wire in 2009, which he actually remembered. That surprised me a little. Anyway, he was an early member of the AACM, collaborated extensively with Anthony Braxton in 1969 and 1970, made some beautiful records for ECM and Nessa in the 1970s. You should check out Divine Love and Spirit Catcher in particular, and has never really stopped putting out music. This year, he's turning 80, and he's celebrating that with an absolute flood of new work. 20 CDs worth spread across six or seven releases, all on TUM, the Finnish label. One of those is a seven-CD box of his string quartet recordings. That's one of the fascinating things about Wadato, really, is that not only is he a brilliant trumpet player with a sound like no one else, but he's also an extraordinary composer who developed his own musical language, Ankrasmation. We talk about that in this interview, along with his approach to the horn, his approach to rhythm, which is very much his own, and just a whole bunch of other things. It's Again, it's a fascinating conversation. I loved talking to him, and I really hope you uh, enjoy listening to it. So I'm going to play another piece of music now. This is Albert Eiler from Trumpet, which is a three-CD set of solo recordings that's out now, part of that giant 80th birthday celebration. So listen to that, and afterwards you'll hear my interview with Wadato Leo Smith.
Hello. Hi, is this Wadada? Yeah, it's Bill. Yeah, how are you, sir? I'm good, man. How are you? Good, good, yeah. You're in New York, right? No, Connecticut. Oh, okay, okay. Because didn't you do something yeah. at the new school this week? Well, I, I've been doing, um, uh, what is it, five, I had a five-week residency. Uh-huh. And uh, that, that just that just ended uh, yesterday with the um, uh, conclusion of a performance and stuff like that, yeah. So, uh -huh. But I live in Connecticut, and, okay. and all of it was via Zoom, you know. Oh, okay, so you weren't yeah. actually in New York, the whole thing was remote. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't sure whether there was, you know, whether you and the musicians would be in the room and it would be broadcast or, you know, how it was going to work, so. Well, look, it, it, it worked like a miracle. Uh, we had one person in, in Spain, in Catalonia, Spain, and um, a person in uh, Oslo, and uh, someone in Texas, not Texas, but uh, two in Brooklyn, um, in New York, uh, Staten Island. So it was a really, uh, I said, the classes were easy, you know, and the rehearsal was easy, but the broadcasting of it was really pretty difficult. We had to kind of pre-record stuff, and each person had to record themselves and upload it, and then it had to be mixed in 45 minutes to an hour and a half. Um, and connected and editing stuff, and it, it was it was like that, but it worked. Great, yeah. So, so I got a bunch of questions, so I guess I'm just gonna like dive right in. Um, let's let's do that. The best way <laughs> to get across the ocean is to dive in. <laughs> you're you're putting out a lot of music this year. In fact, you've you've been really prolific for the last few years. Was there a lot of music kind of building up in you that you just started putting stuff out once you, because you retired from teaching in 2014, right? Uh, 20, yeah, 2013, actually, yeah. That mm -hmm. was my last year. Well, listen, the thing about um, the thing about, about uh, my life is it's really simple. I woke up and I started working at the age of uh, 12, okay, I wrote my first piece at 12, and I've been working ever since, and in terms of output, um, I have lots of music because that's most of what I do is, is create music or make music or compose music or construct or fix music, and so there's always a lot of music there. Uh, Tomb Record has probably another eight. Uh, projects of mine other than the ones that we put out. Okay? Mm -hmm. And uh, I have several projects that I've been recording for my Cabell labor. Okay? That, that, that's, uh, that's there to be put out. And I got tons of stuff that's in my book that's already slated for production whenever the time, occasion um, present itself. So when we use the word accumulation, I don't think that's the best approach. The best approach is that when you live to be 79 years old and turn into 80, okay, uh, your publicist uh, 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 and Bayswick decided that uh, we need to celebrate that. 
and not to celebrate just my 80th birthday, but to celebrate the journey into the 80th. And that's how this thing came about. So there's 19 or 20 CDs that's being released between May and December. Uh, my plan on December 18th is to, to release a video to the public free, which celebrates my birthday. Mm-hmm. And I will, I will release two, two products. One is called a, a music art project, and the other one will be called, uh, 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 uh it's, it's, it's for, uh, my fans, basically. And they're, and they're two different kinds of projects. You see, mm-hmm. but but the big story is is is, is right now is, is the duet duet in trio and the in the solo that that three um, CD set the two three CD sets that's the big news now the solo and the, and the trios and the du- t- double duet. Yeah, yeah, I got those sets the the duo trio and the solo stuff. So let's let me. I'll just ask you about that right up front then, because, uh, you know, you uh, the first one is with Bill Laswell and Milford Graves. Now, I know you'd worked with Bill before, but had you ever recorded with Milford before? Had you ever played with him before, or was this like your first encounter? No, I played with Milford um, about, about four years ago, maybe even five, I'm not sure, but it's, but it's more than three years ago. Uh, we played, uh, I played with him at a place at the Sawdust in New York, with him in uh, one of John Dunn's projects where he had uh, uh, four or five of us that played various kinds of projects. And that was my first performance with Milford. Um, uh, we did we did that as trio, and um, I you know, enjoyed what he, he was doing because he has a, not just a unique, but a pioneering approach to how rhythms are used on drums. Uh, and it's not drumming that I'm talking about, it's rhythm, how rhythms are used on drums. Drumming is a whole nother phenomenon, but mm-hmm. he's brought it out so that the drumming itself becomes rhythm, you see, and so, but not just one rhythm, multiple rhythm. That's why I'm using the word rhythm. You see, and so I I could I could relate to that very much. And um, uh, he actually made a statement after the performance to the public that uh, we have been knowing each other. This is this is for talking. We have been knowing each other for years, and Wadada and I have never played together until now. And he kind of posed the question, why so late or something like that, you know. Um, and, you know, the thing is that every wave meets its uh, destination at some point. And um, uh, because it was in the uh, cosmic realm that we would actually perform and then later record, was that wave, that wave of destiny. Mm-hmm. Now, I interviewed you, man, about 12 years ago for The Wire in 2009. And when yep, we spoke yep, then, we talked about your interest in rhythm outside of that traditional metrical one, two, three, four sense. But Right, exactly. 
But you've worked with some really powerful drummers like Jack DeJohnette, Ronald Shannon Jackson, and Milford in his own way is an extremely was an extremely powerful player. Yeah. So, I mean, what kind of conversations do you have to have with drummers or even like unspoken negotiations? Like, do you think it's easy for drummers to adjust to your style, your non-metrical kind of approach to playing? I think it's, it, I think, let's say it this way, I think that, that, the majority of the creative drummers on the planet can do that. They can easily do that. And the reason they can easily do that is because when you look at rhythm um, and the motion of rhythm, they are not about metrics, you see. They're actually about bigger contents of which metrics seem to be surrounding it. But when you look really deeper underneath of it, uh, it boils down to what Ed Blackwell calls a one, that every stroke is a one. And no other no other count can you give to the one except if you look at the at what's inside of the one. There are multiple things inside of the one, but if the one is the one, then every stroke uh, uh, justifies its own meaning without any um, explanation. So when I play with, with, with Mr. DeJanette, uh, he was the first, that was the first indication that rhythm was larger than metrics and that the idea of the, of the artist being creative, uh, was far more powerful than the fact that, and we talk about drummers, far more powerful than drummers being the ones that keep time and propel, uh, 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 uh the count. That's not true. The, the, the real dramas that I really love, uh, which includes Shannon Jackson, um, uh, 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 Jack DeJohnette, uh, Andrew Sorrell. Andrew Sorrell has the tightest of the metrics, and yet, if you listen to how he plays the bass drum, uh, you find out that he's actually playing rhythm in that metric. You see? Yeah, and then, okay. Then, and then, then there's Milford, who plays a lot of different kinds of, of uh, all four kinds of rhythm going on at the same time. And what you have to do is you slide either above or below or in between uh, where he's at. And what that tells you when you get in there, your viewpoint shows you that while these are, these are, these are flowing uh, molecules of rhythm and that all of them look like they're the same size unless you get inside of them and you find out that one is a little bit larger or longer or bigger than the other one you say mm -hmm. yeah, yeah that's the i'm glad that you mentioned andrew surreal because he i mean he's literally like parade drumming is a huge part of his thing you know a lot of his yeah, rhythms come from that kind of west yeah. indian parade thing and so that's like extremely crisp extremely tight you know i mean you hear the same thing in a guy like billy cobham you know and so it's yeah, very yeah. interesting to me to see the to see the meeting between the two of you on the record that you did for uh, for ecm well yeah because because if you listen to where his drum where his bass drum stro strokes let's do his bass drum strokes in the trumpet you see something that's really beautiful and unusual you say, and it's the flow of these these ideas of, of these molecules of, uh, of of rhythm 
or something that's outside of the ramification of, of metrics. Because metrics, just like anything else, has its, um, its quantitative model is based off of odds and even, you say. And in, and in proportional realities, which is non-metrical, they are based around the idea of long and short. But the long and short is not quantitative as being a little long or a big long or a multiple long. It's just quantitative as a long and short. So that each time you are presented with that equation, you don't have to figure out which way to go because it's going to be one or the other. It doesn't matter which one comes first, you see. So, so, so that's what's so beautiful about um, uh, discovering what, what, what actually exists when two objects collide or get entangled, as Einstein would say, and move, move stuff across. Yeah, the, uh, the idea of the, the long and short is kind of key to your notation system, the onchromation system. I remember yeah, we talked about that. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yes, How did yes. that concept come to you? Because you started developing that in like 50 years ago, in 1970. I mean, did it take a long time for right. it to kind of come together in your mind? What was the evolution? Well, it, it? Came, it came together, you know, bit by bit. You see, like in 19... In 1967, with the bell was when I really understood how that worked, you see. And the long-short relationship was discovered then, you see. And now, uh, over the years, that long-short relationship has so many other kinds of uh, notions, like, for example, the, uh, the uh, uh, cycling of the moon and the cycling of the sun, which suggests winter, fall, and, and et cetera. All those are, are same kinds of a phenomena. See? And then waves, short waves and long waves, or, or high waves and low waves, or, or, or shallow waves and deep waves. They all, all those phenomena are really real, and the way to way to capture them or, or tabulate them in the context of art is that you allow them to be what they are without putting them on them because you didn't or I didn't or no one did make them up. They already existed, so therefore you discovered it. And that, that discovery it can be affected in many kinds of ways. I mean, like you, you take a raw, uh, raw piece of... Uh, a uh, uh, rare metal out of the earth and you call it a diamond or a gold and you go and refine it, you see. Uh, those kind of things crystallize them into their limited forms because because uh, all those things that was diamond was once something that was very black or, 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 or deep, dark, black substance coming from the carbonate, you know, and... Uh, from ice carbon straight on through, you know. You, uh, you've got some music coming out later this year that you did with a string quartet, and you've done a lot of string quartet stuff and, and used string players and things on a lot of different records. Do you, do you use the onchromation system to write string stuff, or do you use more traditional notation for things like that? Well, I use... I use uh, I used I used the five line staff for some of the stuff, you see, but it's not it's non metrical. It's not based off of that kind of a 
configuration, mm-hmm. neither figure-wise or otherwise. Um, I use the notion of um, long and short with, with, within that context always, uh, within the context of the five-line staff, you know, trebles and, and uh, bass and alto clef, et cetera. I use that, you see. But I use it with the fact of knowing that the meaning, the meaning of their use is not the objective end, but the meaning of their use is to achieve something that has no history with the four, I mean, with the five-line uh, uh, four-space staff, you see. And if it has no history with it, then you can actually produce something that's pretty good or pretty rare or pretty unique. But to get back to the idea of string music, in, in 2010, after performing 10 Feet of Summer in the premiere in L.A., mm-hmm. I created my own string quartet. It's called Red Coral Quartet, and they're the ones that have been on the uh, 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 the, the oratorio for, for Rosa Parks, and um, uh, uh, they, they're the ones that's uh, in most of the music that requires strings uh, for my for my performances. Okay, mm-hmm. and the reason I created them is simply because uh, whenever I would send music or write to string quartet in America and offer them my pieces to be performed, they would say, well, we know who you are, but, you know, hey, we don't play jazz, you see. And um, my return to them would be to say, well, oh, well, I don't play jazz either. You know, it's a strange one time, you see. But they don't get that because they're not, they're not turning me down because, they don't like the music or whatever. They're turning me down because basically in their world, um, they don't have no responsibility for people like me. That's basically what they're saying. So I've resolved that issue since, since, since 2010. I've never asked anybody to play my music and will not for the rest of my life because I have the mechanism for being self-sufficient. I created the string quartet. I create any kind of ensemble I need for my performances. I don't ask anymore. Yeah, because, I mean, it, it can be tough, you know, if you're working for, with someone new for the first time to kind of get them comfortable with a different methodology because, you know, a string a string player is coming from that mindset where... If it's not on the page, you know, they don't necessarily know yeah. what to do with it, you know. Well, but, even when it's all on the page, some of them don't know what to do with it. Because <laughs> the truth is that all my string quartets have everything on the page from what I, from what I just told you, from notes on five lines, four space paths, with all kinds of language on it that's, that's unique to them, and the across nation language. So, so even when that's right in front of them, there's a question of how do you do this? What do you do? You know, and yeah, that could be an issue. But the issue is, the larger question is, is how well does an ensemble intend to explore musical life? That's the larger question, because discovery is the most powerful key 
of Fort Ansama, and that discovery can be only generated by inspiration. So how how much adventure does one as an ensemble want to in, inquire into? And I think that in the musical world today, not with just with, with the string quartet, but I'm talking about nearly every other type of ensemble and in every other type of discipline, you know, they don't want to explore the impossible. They want to continue that which is usual and that has no demand in whatsoever except memory and a faulty memory at that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I guess that it's I, I could see why you would want to work with like a tight pool of collaborators, you know, not only because you, yes. you find people whose temperament you agree with, but also there's the idea that when you have a standing ensemble, the ensemble becomes its own thing. It has its own voice that's beyond the voice of the, the four or five players that are in it. Right, exactly. And that's why like, like Red Core is so important. Each of those performers played my music long before they became the quartet. You see? Mm. Ashley played my music before. Andrew played my music before. Charlie played my music before. In fact, Charlie was the first one that began to play my music. And then uh, Mona, she played my music before. All of them did. And that's why I selected them, because they already had a head start, and they already had a sympathetic uh, uh, core related to what I do. I'm curious about a CD that you did a couple years ago uh, that was dedicated to Thelonious Monk. So you did like five of his pieces uh, and four uh, of your own, the solo, you know, and it was solo yeah, trumpet. And Yeah, yeah, reflection on Thelonious Monk, yeah. I'm very curious about your thinking about approaching that music because it seems to me that, you know, just from listening to Monk, that he had like a hand rhythm, meaning, you know, he played the piano almost like a swinging drummer, you know, and you have a lung rhythm which is to say that your melodies are rooted in breath, you know, philosophically as well. So how did you reconcile those approaches, do you think? Well, I, first of all, those wasn't, those wasn't obstacles for me to overcome. That's the first thing, okay? Uh, what, what, was, what, what the monk music represented for me was a presentation of my version of how I used his compositions inside my house with the trumpet as etudes. And etudes are not of how to play monk, but etudes of how to understand his composition, how to understand his language. And the language that I'm, that I'm looking at in this case is of course uh, the PR language. You see, mm -hmm. and he spoke it, and he performed it with uh, a kind of a fluidy fluency that um, most pianists don't play with. And let me give you an idea. Uh, I was talking to VJ about Monk's piano music, and he he mentioned something that was very curious. Uh, he said that Monk 
played the piano without trying to fix its intonation problem. Okay? And that was how I was approaching the understanding of his language, that Monk played the piano in a way that made the piano sound more perfect than, let's say, someone that played the piano purely in a Eurocentric way where it had just the clarity of pitch and the avoidance of certain kinds of uh, 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 note collection that would show that the piano has a problem with intonation. And you have a, you have a lot of pianos like piano players like that, you know. Uh, and and I want to remind uh, uh, our listener that we're not talking about creativity. We're talking about the technique of playing the piano. Mm-hmm. You say, um, uh, uh, John Lewis, John Lewis, one of my favorite composers, he played the piano strictly like it should be sounding in order to make it sound without having to show that it has some intonation problems. He say, uh, Cecil Taylor did not do that. Mm-hmm. Monk did not do that, he say. And there's a number of other players that did not play the piano like that. Um, um, uh, but but it's, it's, it's the way in which they perceive something about the instrument, you see. And so for the trumpet, being a, a so-called single-line instrument, playing Monk's pieces give you insight into intonation, you see, mm-hmm. uh, and how to, how to understand that some tone phenomena should sound the way that they sound, whether they be intended or accidental, because both forms exist. You see, so so when I played Monk, I played Monk on the trumpet in a way that understands that some of the notes are going to be sounding different than other ones. Even the same note will sound different than the other one, and it's sounding that way because the melody or the structure of its melodic form makes it so because it was done or written for the piano by Monk to sound the real way the natural piano sounds. Now that's kind of a that's kind of a, an elaborate way of trying to trying to say that 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 my approach to playing monk as studies or etudes or etudes, depending on how you pronounce it, um, was my ability to learn how to think about what the trumpet sounds like without the problem of trying to make it sound like something. Yeah, that... and a good example in in that particular in that particular recording is um, is uh, round about midnight. Okay, that's one of them. Okay, uh, what round about midnight does is I've never ever wanted to play round about midnight publicly or on a recording. Mm-hmm. In fact, that idea came up at the at the very end of the recording. You see, uh, the Patrick, the record uh, owner of, of Tomb, asked me, well, why not? Why don't you play around about midnight? And I said, no, I'm not going to play around about midnight because 
you know, it's one of those pieces that are very hard to play, first of all. But the but the timer relationship to space, both horizontal and vertical, is difficult to do. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I made, that particular night, I made five or six or seven or eight or nine or ten, um, uh, how you say it, uh, uh, efforts to, to record that piece. And it didn't come off. And then when I got back and listened to them, I decided that none of those were I'm going to work on to fix, uh, that I would just try it again. So the next time I went to Finland, I tried it again. And the version that, that we have there is the, is, the, is the only version of it. And if you listen closer to the melody, some of those notes pops by themselves. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised at some of the notes that come in that's connected to the melody, mm-hmm. but they pop out simply by themselves. You know? Yeah. Um, whatever that's about, uh, I don't believe it can be totally explained, except <laughs> that um, it's, 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 it's one of those, those kinds of things that um, um, made it important to play Round about midnight, even though I intended never to play it, because I thought the piece was itself also very important, and also the um, uh, the two versions, the two different artists I like playing round about midnight is Thelonious Monk and Miles Davis. So you so you got a difficult task in front of you to think about playing round midnight. Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing with it is, is it's it's almost as much that piece is almost as much about the arrangement as the melody it's it's difficult to to do it in a solo context because it really is kind of a thing where that kind of demands other instruments i feel like beyond the lead you know well well i i think monk's solo versions are, are quite brilliant and i do believe that if you take away all the instruments surrounding miles davis uh, quartet, quartet versions of it. Uh, you find some magical happening, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And here again, that's these are these are these are the kind of the ways that that I look at when you analyze a piece of music. Every single strain or every single track of that 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 particular composition uh, has to be able to stand alone uh, without anything else around it. And you find that when you look at it like that, uh, it, yeah, it's more demanding on the artist, but that's how it was intended, you see. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, even in recording events, it was never intended that one engineer would record the full ensemble, no matter whether it's a quartet, a trio, a quartet, or a larger, you see. To really, to really understand the nature of Happening in the space in a real time zone, you need more than one engineer. I'm curious about your your actual sound because I mean, when you, how old were you when you picked up the horn? Like 10, 12? I was twelve. Twelve. I was twelve. And I mean, that was you know in the forties. Like there was no, 
there really wasn't a precedent yet for the kind of sound that you have. I mean, the pre you know the standards the the standard for trumpet playing was you know Armstrong or like you know swing guys. So I mean, well, you look if you, if you hear Armstrong hold a long sound, and he has a number of them in his works. You hear that his sound was magnificent, and then you got that that Joseph Oliver. His sound was magnificent. The thing that makes sound is is how you hear. That's my belief is that the, the the hearing quality of the performer or the artist uh, is the one that actually makes the sound. And then the things you do to get to that sound. Okay, um, most people just 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 will do. Uh, I'm talking about trumpet players now. They mostly would do just long sounds. Okay, mm -hmm. and they do long sounds with the count, meaning that holding it a long time, make sure it's long and that and that. Well, that's inappropriate, you see, because that long sound that's being held with no tension given to anything ends up being a waste of time. Okay, how do you play a long sound? You play a long sound by following the, the, the initial uh, event that is what the sound faces produce, and then you then you observe it while you are creating it, all the way through to its largest uh, a moment of of of, of, uh, of dynamic environment, wave, and etc. to its conclusion. And when you're doing that, you gotta evaluate the quality of those. Uh, 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 embellishments and, and, and kind of a sonic uh, 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 envelopment of sound. You got you to think about the quality of it. How does it sound from the very moment it starts and while it's developing to the moment it's finished? If you play a long sound like that, you're going to end up with a really fantastic sound. Okay? That's one quality of it. But the other quality is that most people don't understand, and this is why, why the trumpet players came, coming out of New Orleans had great sound, is outside, playing outside, okay? Playing outside, playing marches, playing on your back porch or sitting under your tree in your backyard playing the trumpet, or going out to your grandparents' uh, place and going into the bush and playing right at the edge of the bush. Not not outside the bush, but inside the bush, and then going back farther and farther into the bush and playing the trumpet. What you do is you realize that certain things happen. The trumpet sound changes depending on how far you're inside the woods and not. And when, it's, when the deeper you get in there, the harder it is to produce the sound that you produce in the open space. Okay. So, so all those things of, of, of what I once being able to hear and feel where I want the sound to be and then going after it. And once you get it, because you're discovering it, you can never lose it. It never it never leaves you. Now when you were when you were a younger guy and you were in with the you know, you were getting involved with the AACM like late sixties, early seventies and then there was the bag guys in St. Louis at the same time, like when you're con when you're around, like a guy like Lester Bowie or a guy like Baikita Carroll, 
you know, and their styles are so completely different from your own, how do you maintain your own sort of identity? I mean, because you're all completely unique in the way you sound, but you're there, you know, you're there working around each other, you hear what other people are doing. How do you stay, you know, on your own path? Well, I, I think I think the, the easiest way to do that is is just be yourself. You know, um, uh, oneself. There's no way to embellish it to make it something else unless you artificially do it. You see, and um, basically, um, uh, when I met uh, Lester Bowie, which was in 1967, um, uh, I. I, I already had my sound of what it's going to sound like, and I was a buzz in developing uh, a notion about what the creative music would be like, uh, is. And he was actually the first trumpet player in Chicago that I heard when I came to town. Okay. And, and Bikita, I heard Bikita much later, like, like right before. Um, no, I heard Bikita, actually, I heard Bikita in, uh, in Europe. I didn't hear him in. Uh, 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 St. Louis, you know, this is like, this is like uh, 1979, uh, 1969, sorry, 1969 mm -hmm. in Europe, I heard it. But, but the thing is, is that um, the only way to maintain your own sense of balance is to not be confused with whatever your surroundings is. Okay. There's a, there's an old Egyptian axiom that goes all the way back, that says that uh, the human being should be able to balance themselves, themselves in the midst of diversity, meaning when there's lots of stuff going on, you should be able to still maintain your balance. And that means in everything, your sense of who you are, what you think about, and how you do it. And in trumpet playing of music making, um, uh, uh, the best quality it, when you're on stage with another performer is to forget what they play. Okay. You can hear it, you can listen to it, but it's not in the center of you. It's, it's just there on the stage. That's actually something else that I wanted to, that kind of ties into my next question, because I saw you play at the, the 50th anniversary ECM concert in New York, and it was very interesting uh -huh. because, you know, you, you came out with Vijay and played a duo first, and then he left after like 15 minutes or so, and Bill Frizzell and Andrew Cyril came out, and you guys played a couple of pieces from the La Broba record, so... What are your, you know, what were you thinking about on that night when you had, you know, when you had to kind of shift from one mode to the other, back to, you know, back to back? Is that what you mean? Like just staying to yourself no matter who was up on stage with you? Yeah, that's, that's one context. But the other context is this, that of all the people that played on that, that ACM 50th anniversary, BJ and I, when we hit, stepped on stage, we stepped on stage completely empty. We had not prepared or discussed anything. Okay. Mm -hmm. All that music was created for the first time and the last time right then. We didn't play from our book, from our, from our duet uh, record. We played something 
that was unique for that moment. And stepping back from that to play with Andrew and Bill, um, there, there's not a there's not a big distance to go, okay? Because uh, truly, I'm already in tune when they come on stage, okay? Uh-huh. And the fact is, because I'm already on stage, the tradition is really simple. Whoever occupies the space, the other ones that come into that space have to make the adjustment. I didn't have to make no adjustment. I already own the space. <laughs> you see what I mean? Yeah. I already own the space because I'm already there. And I just did something that nobody in that whole aggregate of 40 or 50 musicians did. I didn't, we didn't play from our book, and we deliberately decided not to play from our book, that we were going to create. That's the word we use. We're going to create. You see? So, so I already own the stage. I didn't leave the stage and come back. The stage was mine. So the adjustment was everything else that came on stage. You see? Yeah, yeah. There's a record that you just put out that was recorded in 2015, I think, the, which was uh, with Douglas Ewart and Mike Reed. And I'm, I'm, I love this record, by the way. I think it's fantastic. But before I ask about the actual music, I want to know why it's called Sunbeams of Shimmering Light and not Sunbeams. Was that a typo that you guys just decided to go with? What happened there? Um, well... Uh, essentially, um, uh, all of the names come from my, from, from my, uh, uh, how you call it, uh, Cyrus. Okay. Mm-hmm. Except, except the piece where Douglas is, is, uh, reading the point. I didn't, I didn't name that, but the rest of them are, are my names. And, uh, Sunbeam, Sunbeam is a light, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you heard of what uh, of what Einstein said about light, right? Einstein says that he introduced the fact that lights are particles. You see, is that lights are beams of, of small pellet particles? Okay, because up until he said that, everybody just considered light simply as being a wave. Mm-hmm. It is a wave, but it's also being the particles that 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 um, uh, uh, that shoots forth uh, at the speed of light. Okay, okay. so beam, be, shimmering beam, a shimmering sunbeam. Um, that's close to that that definition of light. Ah, oh, okay, I see now. Yeah. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. If you if you Google if you Google Einstein and and uh, and light and and how he came up with that that idea, it's a fascinating one. Mm-hmm. You see? Yeah. Uh, because it challenged everything that we know about this stuff. You see, and then it left holes into the scientific field, both of quantum and all kinds of physics. It left holes there. And those holes, believe it or not, was the best thing that could happen to science because, because it afforded scientists the ability to understand that whatever they perceive to be whatever 
may not be that because there are other kinds of realities that must be taken into consideration. Mm-hmm. And those are powerful holes that, that generate imagination, uh, gulfs of uh, fantasy, scientific journeys of pure non-logic in all kinds of ways. Because, because creation is still a mystery and that mystery is as big as it was from the very beginning. That's why that's why they use such terms like dark matter and and dark energy. And the word dark means hidden, covered, concealed. You see? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. Yeah. But but I'm 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 a science I'm an artist and a scientist, Mister. I know you you about to get that impression now, but I'm I'm telling you. That's how I think of it. I think of all this stuff in, in these in these contexts in which uh, the larger picture is is somehow uh, uh, inflated so that people can see it. You know. Yeah, yeah. The uh, I mean the the recording, like I said, it's been it was from 2015, but it's just coming out now, and I'm curious, like. How much I don't even a, remember which which performance we did that on. It must have been, it must have been a live performance. Yeah, you know, and that's what I, I wanted no to idea ask: is like, was, how much you know. of of a show stays with you after the fact? Do you like leave it all on the stage, or do you ever think about, you know, wow, I was really hot last night, you know, or you know, anything like that? Like, how does it work no, for you? No. <laughs> it works for me. Is that is that the the the, um, uh, the preparation for the stage starts in uh, truthfully the night before, and then when I step on stage, that's like stepping on the pedal that releases everything. And then when I step off stage, that 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 spot that threshold off stage, when you step on it, it's the pedal that seals everything again. Uh, it's not useful to remember any of that stuff, okay? Because it all came through as a stream, a flowing stream of inspiration. And when you start remembering stuff, it crowds the field. It fills the heart with too many images. So an empty heart is far greater than uh, one that's full, or even half full or third full. So you leave it where you left it. And because you leave it where you left it, everybody that participated in it, that is the artists and the observers, they're going to carry it forth in a different kind of memory, a memory that has been absorbed in their consciousness. And it's not about the kind of uh, recalling memory or the witness kind of a memory. It's about a much more profound memory. Yeah, and the audience remembers it differently than you do. So... Yes, and, and they should, because their experience is what at the heart of their uh, uh, codifying that particular moment inside of them as part of their consciousness. Now, you've got this three-CD set coming out that's just called Trumpet, and it's, like I think, like 30-some solo pieces. So how do you keep solo playing fresh, especially when it's that volume of material and this far into your, you know, artistic path, because 
when there's even like to the way I think about it is when there's even one other person there, you've got like an external source of inspiration, somebody to bounce ideas off or to react against or whatever. But when it's just you, how do you keep it new and and avoid playing things that you've played a hundred times before? You know. Well, first of all, when inspiration comes, uh, it only comes to the one that has has the receiver that is open to. Okay, that's the first thing. And uh, if you have ten guys on stage um, uh, and people are bouncing off each other, which is something that I try not to do anyway, because the bouncing off and the connecting off and stuff like that, that ain't really necessarily the core of, of, of what it is. The core is is that the person that's being inspired can generate enough heat or sparks of fire to engulf or, or make that performance uh, have a have a have a sheen on it and make it work. In solo music, you're still in the same position. The inspiration is coming to you. It's only you. And in my case, more specifically, with those pieces in um, in Helsinki, um, we recorded those, those that music over a four-day period, and they were recorded four days in a row. And the session would start around 9.30 or 10 o'clock in the morning, and it would go until late afternoon, not into 6 o'clock or 5 o'clock, but like 4 o'clock or or somewhere around there, three thirty, four o'clock, mm-hmm. and then I would go uh, with Patrick, and we would go in and have uh, dinner, and uh, take a sauna, and then uh, we would go to our respective spaces, and I would continue the journey. I would work on the music, not playing the trumpet, but on the compositional part of it, of what I was going to play the next day. And I worked out a majority of the music that way, but some of it come, come out of my notebook. You see, if I'm in the studio on the third day and I brought uh, uh, three pieces, you know, or four pieces, and it looked like I needed another piece, I just flip over my notebook and find the appropriate uh, uh, note that I've set there for use sometime in the future and from there i'll either read it directly out of my notebook or i'll i'll take it and jot it down and expand it or extract it in a certain kind of way uh for it to fit that particular occasion that went on for four days so once you hit the first day and the first day feels like success you've already created that euphoria feeling inside of you that you can see now the beginning and the end of the journey because because when you got the first day down um you already have experienced everything now you got to just put it together mm-hmm. you see? so so it actually if, if, if another way would be to explain it is that it had for me, a feeling of um, of kind of like I was on a retreat, like I was on a sonic spiritual retreat, and that the notion of the music 
was those moments of celebration, of ceremony, of uh, prayer, and uh, 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 reflection and contemplation. You're, I, I guess this is my last question, is you're going to be 80 this year, as we discussed. Where do you see yourself on the path as an artist these days? Are you still moving forward and looking for something entirely new, or are you in that zone where you're refining your concept and getting closer and closer to the core of it? You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I'm... I'm um... Let's see, how can I put this? Uh, my dreams are like a flying falcon that's, that's gliding upward through the sky. Okay. And it glides straight into the sun and comes out straight on the other side of the sun, still aiming upward. That's a metaphor of how I feel about where I'm at and where my destiny might be leading to. I don't feel uh, that I've completed anything. Uh, it's like running downhill at full speed and trying to anticipate where the, the spots are that you might uh, 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 dip a little lower, a little higher in stomach and fall, but maintain the equilibrium even after hitting those spots. Okay. Mm -hmm. So so you hit one of those spots, you, you're like tumbling, you're near tumbling, but if you, if you can maintain that uh, little tiny edge over gravity, you don't fall. You just keep moving downward. So, 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 what I'm trying to explain is that I wake up every day looking to uh, create music. Not necessarily always on the trumpet or always in performance, but in some context. And I also write about music, uh, if not every day at least every week, okay? And those things keep me engaged and keep me looking forward without trying to figure out if I'm going to get there. Okay, that was my conversation with Wadada Leo Smith, and that's the end of this episode of the Burning Ambulance podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, and if so, I hope you'll consider becoming a subscriber on Patreon at patreon.com slash burningambulance. It's just $5 a month, and it'll really help us to improve the website and the show. So visit patreon.com slash burningambulance and throw us $5 a month if you can. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll come back for the next one.